0: They didn't have to talk about this. They could have done what all of the scout leaders, all of the scout executives who did know about childhood sexual abuse in their ranks. They could have not talked about it and just said, well, we'll hope that doesn't happen anymore. But it kept happening. And not only did it keep happening, it was getting worse.
1: That was Irene Taylor talking about the brave subjects of her DuPont award-winning documentary film, Leave No Trace, about sexual abuse in the Boy Scouts and the cover-up. Welcome to another episode of On Assignment. My name is Abby Wright. I run the professional prizes program at Columbia Journalism School. I am joined in the booth, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She is the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello, Lisa.
2: Hey, Abby. Well, the DuPont submission window is now officially closed, but it was a pretty frenetic week while well, it lasted. And so thank you to everyone who submitted.
1: Yes, it is a another wonderful group of submissions to look forward to screening and listening to. Um, So, today, Lisa, we thought it would be nice to revisit a conversation we had with an amazing director, Irene Taylor, who worked on this film with her partner, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Nigel Jaquist. Both Nigel and Irene are graduates of this illustrious journalism school, and now they're both DuPont winners. That's right. They met here.
2: Um, Our listeners may have noted that both Irene's film and our previous episode with Connie Walker she won for Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's. Both of those are about sexual abuse covered up by big institutions.
1: Well, it's clearly an ongoing issue, unfortunately, and I'm glad that it is being discussed and reported on so widely. Mm-hmm. So Lisa, you and I both loved this film and talked many times about mm-hmm. the different ways it does a really outstanding job of discussing this tough and very sensitive topic. Tell me about the title of the film.
2: So Leave No Trace is actually a Boy Scout motto about preserving nature, you know, like you go camping and when you leave, you take all your trash with you as though you were never there. Thus, leave no trace. The film takes this motto and uses it to reference the many decades that the Boy Scouts have attempted to cover up the scandal.
1: Leaving no trace. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. So... um The abuse was outrageous, and the cover-up, as is so often the case, even more so. Over 80,000 Boy Scouts throughout the country filed claims against the Boy Scouts of America, which ultimately led to the group filing for bankruptcy. And since the film won its
2: DuPont in February, there have actually been some updates. This April, the Boy Scouts of America came out of bankruptcy and created a plan to pay out some $2 billion to the survivors It's gonna take some time, but uh, it is the biggest sexual abuse settlement in history.
1: Wow. Well, we actually met some of the survivors um, at the ceremony and at an event after the ceremony, and their courage in speaking out was just super humbling and inspiring. They've been waiting years for this resolution, um, so it looks like their long wait may finally be over. Check out our news page on dupont.org for more details.
2: It's great to know this film has had a real impact. I love how this film took the personal and the private details of what happened to these men and wove it through the history of the Boy Scouts and America at large. It all combined to create a really powerful, moving piece of work.
1: So in this conversation you're about to hear Lisa and I start things off by sharing the happy news with Irene that she and her team are winners of the 2023 DuPont Columbia Award.
2: It's always my favorite part of the job, as I often say, and Irene really was so touched when we told her. And we also got to talk to her about some of the history, her motivation behind making the film, as well as some of the artistic decisions that she made.
1: So without further ado, here is our edited conversation with Irene Taylor from 2022.
2: Well, so we have a little bit of news and that is that Leave No Trace has won a 2023 DuPont Columbia Award.
0: Wow. (sighs) Thank you for recognizing uh, what Nigel and I and my team did. Um, But these men are really the reason this film resonates with so many people.
2: For people who have not seen the movie, if you could just uh, give us a thumbnail
0: sketch. Leave No Trace, I think, really looks at a centuries-old story, but it's told through the lens of six different boys and men. I found men who had been in the Boy Scouts in the 50s and present day and everything in between. And I think it really not only told a story about these men's lives and what they carry with them, but it tells a story about America. Because Boy Scouts uh, are quintessentially American. And I think, sadly, we learned that some of these darker aspects of what went on within the Boy Scouts, you know, they are also part of our American legacy. So it was a very painful film for the men to make with me. Um, And I just moved as carefully as I could through the process.
1: I mean, just their voices alone carry the film. Talk to us about your preparation. How did you get these men to agree to sit down with you to tell their stories? And how
0: do you approach that kind of an interview? So what I bring to the experience of childhood sexual abuse, it's not a personal one. It is one of being a mother I have three sons, two of them went through the scouts program and I found out that their scout troop had decades of violations. And together with my partner, Nigel Jaquis, we realized that Oregon was really at the epicenter of this cascade of events that went into that. Sorry, I'm still like reacting to the fact that you just told me we won. I'm having a little trouble.
2: That's okay. Congratulations, by the way.
0: And I just, I'm just so overwhelmed because it's really a big deal for for these men.
2: Why is it such a big deal?
0: It is a big deal to these men and these two young boys in my film because they didn't have to talk about this. They could have done what all of the scout leaders, all of the scout executives who did know about childhood sexual abuse in their ranks, they could have not talked about it and just said, well, we'll hope that doesn't happen anymore, but it kept happening. And not only did it keep happening, it was getting worse. And now we have 82,000 men in the wake of this who are voluntarily saying we were abused. Well, these men and boys in my film not only said, yes, we were abused. We're one of the 82,000. They said, we're actually going to tell you what happened. And This film is not about getting into the details of exactly what they endured. It's really about understanding what they carry with them. And it's an understanding about how an institution could believe in their image, in their mythology so much that they were blinded to all these things that they knew are wrong. I respect the Boy Scouts. I respect what they were founded on, but there was a really dark side and no one was talking about it. And these men and these two boys did not have to talk about it. And they did. You can die without
2: being killed. Because some of those experiences that I had when I was being abused, I felt like I was dying or Maybe death was the answer. So I died many times, but I had to wake up in the morning and
0: face another day. So you asked me how I approached these interviews and um, my partner Nigel Jacobs and I, we shared the interviewing. Nigel was a scout and I am the mother of scouts. So I approached my interviews as a community member, as a mother of Boy Scouts, as a volunteer. I think that's the first thing. And the second is I really just tried to leave a lot of space for these men and boys to talk. And I didn't over question them because I'm not sure any of them walked into that interview situation knowing what they were going to tell me. And I think in most of the cases, as I understand it, these men probably gave more of themselves, shared more of their experiences than maybe they walked into that interview intending to.
1: My brother was an All-State football player and you a know, big guy. And uh, I remember him telling me the story about his scoutmaster coming into his tent one night. And he just basically said, you know, get off me. And, you know, I, I, I don't want anything to do with that. And kind of like, you know, bullied him in a way to, you know, get him off. And that was kind of, it was funny because that was always in my mind. And then we moved here in eighth grade. And camp kicked the wean up the road. I had an experience where, uh, it's funny because I can still smell him. I can still think about his image and who that person was at that point in time. an adult volunteer, uh, you know, did a very similar thing to me. And unlike my brother, I didn't necessarily have the strength or the ability as an eighth grade to, you know, kind of just push him off and say, you know, stop, what are you doing?
0: There are things that they told me that I will never share with the world. We don't need to. And I think that, Um, restraint was really important in this film, particularly for people who may have endured abuse themselves. I think empathy and tone and mood is really what's important here. So that when someone is done watching this film, maybe they will be moved to work through it better themselves, work through it with their family, their friends, their spouse, their partner, their children, right? I mean, some of these men brought their children to the premiere. Some of the boys in the film are children, you know, so I think restraint was really important in this film.
1: Lisa and I were just talking about that, how the tone of the film is so effective because you don't feel manipulated. I mean, it, the material has such an emotional potency that a quiet tone makes it more engaging in a way.
0: Was that a deliberate choice on your part? For sure, and thank you for noticing. I I think a good nonfiction film draws on values of journalism, and it draws on the best values of cinema. And cinema is all about tone. I went to journalism school, and I'm self-taught in the world of film and filmmaking. And I've um I've always been pretty simple and straightforward in my storytelling. I remember getting my hand slapped when I was in journalism school because I used too much music in my in my projects. And I was like, yeah, but it puts you in the mood or it takes you to this place that words can't always take us. And that's, I think, in this film, what was so critical was having a top-notch composer because the music could carry us places in our imagination. and frankly, to dark places in our imagination without needing to ask so much of these survivors who were giving us details.
2: That's so interesting because we were specifically, Abby and I were specifically talking about the music and how it took me till the very end to realize that this music had felt not manipulative at all, as it often can be, and very almost soothing. Like it helped me to watch and listen to the stories of these
1: men.
0: Mm. Mark Orton is a top-notch composer who is trained in classical music and Americana. I think that music should not be telling you what to think. It should give you space and a room in which to feel what you're feeling. And I think this film has a lot of facts. It has a lot of journalistic moments that we need to point out about legally, how we got here to this point in the Boy Scouts, where so many thousands of men are suing and the survival of the organization is really on the brink, but it's also about giving people who watch the film a space to understand their own reaction. And, um, I think that, uh, because we do have so many survivors of childhood sexual abuse in the world. This is really a universal story.
2: So can I just ask you, you you said that your kids were Boy Scouts and you found out that there was involvement in all of this with their troop. Is that the genesis of the film? Is that how you came to do this?
0: Yeah. So about 15 years ago, there was a case in Oregon brought against a man who had sexually abused boys in my son's troop. that case was the beginning of the end for the boy scouts the judge sent it to the supreme court here in our state and the supreme court decided that the information that they had found through all the depositions that the prosecuting attorneys had found through all the depositions really should be public because it was a roster of people who were, in many cases, still serving in the Boy Scouts. So this was the beginning of just this giant boulder rolling downhill that would eventually crush the financial stability of the Boy Scouts. There were so many legal cases that came out of that, and then all of the other spinoff cases that came when perpetrators were identified that the Boy Scouts needed to file for bankruptcy. It's not just about a financial settlement. It's about Boy Scouts admitting that they did
2: wrong
1: and they allowed wrong to happen on their watch.
0: So it's important that we get a settlement. I mean, it's the closest thing to justice any of these people will ever get. And if we fail to do that, then there's no closure. It has to to happen. I started this film with zero institutional support. And for the first year, I talked to my partner, Nigel, and we just decided we're doing this. We're moonlighting. We're doing this after our paid jobs. And eventually we had enough material, not not so much video material. We had done some interviews, but we had subjects. But most importantly, we had context. We had context of the state we lived in. We had context as a Boy Scout himself. That was Nigel as a parent of a Boy Scout, as someone who had experience in the organization. And that gave us a lot of motivation. It gave us credibility. And so we felt emboldened to make the film that was also rooted in integrity of information. It's
2: a magnificent film. It's very important and it tells a story that allows you to learn so much.
1: Um, The archival is just gorgeous. How hard was it to dig that up? I mean, there's the story of America and the story of the Boy Scouts, so interwoven. I mean, that helps really give context. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally
0: awake, and Marley straight. Where did you
1: find the footage?
0: So um, I call our archivist our magic bullet. (laughs) She is um, someone who wakes up every morning, just pushes up her sleeves, and just digs into the earth of American archive and international archive. But in this case, we really were not only looking for Boy Scout material, but we were looking for evidence of a cultural progression over the 20th century. The America that the Boy Scouts was founded in and the America we're living in now. So uh, fortunately, the Boy Scouts made a lot of films of themselves. That's, That's how the myth was made. The Boy Scouts were in so much of the fabric of not only our society, but of politics. So if you looked up political archives, we found every American president either speaking at the Jamboree or with Boy Scouts. And when we found FDR, oh my God. Scouting has worked. It's based on cooperation. You know what that means. It's based on the spirit of service. And it's going to work we found three or four different newsreels because that's how many newsreel cameramen were there when FDR spoke at the Jamboree.
2: You mentioned in the application, the Boy Scouts and their role as you were trying to make the film, what were the challenges? How did they impede you in any way? And then how did you finally get them to go on the record? That's a powerful institution that you took
0: on. Yeah. The quick answer is that my partner, Nigel, spent many months contacting former board members of the Boy Scouts of America. These were primarily men at the top of politics in in America. We had heads of state. We had um, Fortune 500 businessmen. I mean, that was practically a given. People who would be on the board had a lot of business acumen. And I think that that effort is what eventually led us to a very critical interview for the film. And that was with the head of the board at the time that the scouts declared their bankruptcy. We had reached a tipping point where they knew we had a lot of material. They knew Mm. that we were going very deep into the history they knew that we were working with their archive team the boy scouts cooperated with me providing some films they did want to engage with us and i think ultimately doesn't always work this way in journalism but ultimately there was a rapport that really helped open the door I remember the scout law that I learned, you know, 45 years ago. It changed my life in many ways for the better. But I, I wonder how you weigh this so the, the benefit that you and I got and that millions of other people got from scouting and the devastation that it has wrought on a significant number of men, the good that it did and the damage it did.
1: I'm glad these 82,000 came forward. I'm glad we're at a point in time in our society where people will talk about abuse. Fifty years ago, people didn't talk about abuse very often. It was taboo. And, and so, so I actually look at the opportunities to make places better.
0: I can't speculate why the Boy Scouts chose to be a part of the film, but... I am grateful for that because I think it was important for us to see them acknowledge what had happened. It was also important for each of us to bring away sort of what you make of that interview. And I think um, there's a lot of different ways to understand the Boy Scouts response over the last hundred years to sexual abuse and it's evolved.
2: I did want to ask you about the response from the people in the film like after it came out what what's been
1: their response what's been what's happening with them how are they and I just want to say the gentleman's wife who sits in the room when he does his interview I will just never forget that woman I don't know how you even approach that to have her there for the interview or if that happened by accident or if that was intentional but that was remarkable
0: well, whenever I interview someone, I, I, I mean, particularly for this film, I just said, we can talk alone. If you want anyone in the room with you, that's fine. Um, I've, interviewed parent, I've interviewed children talk about the death of a parent, and the other parent is in the room, or their therapist is in the room, or their, their brother's in the room playing Legos on the floor. Like, whatever makes the person feel comfortable and at home. Um, this film has affected the men and boys in the film in different ways. I was very fortunate early in the project to get a donation to a nonprofit project that I run called the Treehouse project that specifically would be earmarked for the survivors profiled in this film mm. to help them go from private to public or to put it in the words of the film, to go from victim to survivor.
1: Why didn't I say something? Why didn't I go to somebody? Why didn't I tell my mother? Why didn't I, I don't know, go to the police, go to the Boy Scouts? Fear, um, embarrassment, shame.
0: public you're saying well I'm still here I got through it I carry this with me but I got through it so they have started an advocacy group for survivors specifically for the Boy Scouts this is all about giving the men the tools if they want them the tools and the resource I really I think there has been an increased awareness in the last several years in documentary filmmaking that our subjects are impacted by the release of a film. Their lives suddenly are not just there for Irene to hear when we're sitting in a room with a camera rolling and it's very intimate. Suddenly, 5 million people, 8 million people, people in England, people in Australia are watching their experience. I didn't tell them what to do. I just said, this is here, why don't you guys talk amongst yourselves? We're talking about the men doing a, a retreat together. Mm. These are men that are from 14 to 72. They have a lot to learn from each other. And so they might, um, we're trying to have one therapist who can work with all of them and together for like a two day retreat. but they're leading the way. And that's the most important
2: thing, so. Can I just, I have one more question, which is, um, you know, the presence of the young person in the film was so critical because it belies the whole narrative of the Boy Scouts. Like we had a problem, but we don't have a problem anymore. And so Mm -hmm. how important was that to include somebody who was not a middle-aged man who could talk about something far in the past and how, what did you have to do in order to get that, that part of the film?
0: So there are two boys in the film. At the time we filmed with them, one was 18 and his brother, I believe, was 14 at the time. And we met these boys because they were represented by uh, the two attorneys in our film who were part of the Supreme Court case. So through these two attorneys, I said to them, we know this is happening now. We have to have that in the film. We have to understand that this is still happening now because it is a cautionary tale to parents who are considering where to put their kids today. These two brothers were the very first people we interviewed who had been abused in scouting. They were where I had my focus from the beginning, but I knew to really tell the story, I needed the oldest person and I needed the youngest person. It progressed, like, really fast.
1: (sighs) I'd wake up with him doing stuff. I know he used to take pictures as well. I don't know if every Boy Scout member is, like, what Doug was, but... I... I don't really know how to explain it. I guess.
0: When you say
1: what Doug was, what was Doug, what do you mean? Pedophile, I mean pedophile. It's just kind of hard to say, I guess.
0: We walked into their home that day, knowing that we would would film with the 18 year old, but the 14 year old was uncertain if he wanted to be a part of it. And within a couple of hours, It just felt really comfortable for him apparently because he just said, Hey, I don't mind. I don't mind. And before you know it, he was playing with the cat and we were letting him shoot the camera and he was trying things out and he was really feeling a lot more comfortable. And in the end, you know, they came to New York and together with the other survivors, you know, of two other generations, they all watched the film together in a small theater, 50 seats, and That was a really important, the most important screening we've ever had of this film. Will the Boy Scouts
1: exist? Is the Boy Scouts going to exist in the future or is it just dead? Can it exist?
0: Yeah, you know, I used to think that it was up to the Boy Scouts if they wanted to exist, if they wanted to continue to exist. But we may be beyond that point now. There may be things that are just that boulder that has just been rolling downhill since the Oregon Supreme Court case. It's big and it really does have the ability to crush them, regardless of the best of intentions of very quality people in the organization who are trying to save it. So I think it remains to be seen. And I am so, so grateful for the Columbia DuPont Awards for recognizing this because I am so encouraged by what this will mean not only for the survivors in our film but for survivors everywhere and for journalists who want to tackle this kind of stuff in a tasteful way so i think it's sending out really important messaging both to subjects and to filmmakers and journalists who are working with the subtleties of cinema to really bring home a story
2: That was Irene Taylor. Thank you again, Irene, director of the DuPont-winning film Leave No Trace. You can watch that film on
1: Hulu. We highly recommend you do. Um, And we can't wait to have even more conversations like this coming up with this year's winners.
2: Thank you again to all who submitted an application for the awards. And maybe our next conversation will be with you.
1: This episode was brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced and engineered by recent J-School grad, Alyssa Castles.
2: We'll be back soon with another episode from On Assignment.
1: Until next time.